This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Okay, we're live, Mike. Here we go. Welcome, everyone, to Ages and Icons. I'm Mike Crisologo. And I'm Gina Bucci. You're a bit hot there, Mike, on the mic. Oh. Mike on the mic. <laughs> Yeah, we've uh, it's been a long day, hasn't it? We've been running back and forth. We just got into the studio. We just came from an interview with the one and only Michael Palin. Michael Palin, yeah, former Monty Python member, author, travel uh, traveler extraordinaire. He's made uh, multiple. Uh, what's the words I'm looking for here, Gina? Uh, travel documentaries. Duties, That's, sorry. Travel documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> we literally just ran into the studio, hooked it up, and started going. So Michael Palin. Um, he would appreciate that joke. Yeah. It's yeah. very lowbrow. <laughs> um, uh, after all, he is the guy that came up with the coconuts joke on uh, Holy Grail, right? Holy Grail. I have had the Lumberjack song stuck in my head for the last two days, reading oh. about Michael Palin. Sing a little. Free I it. Free it from I'm your brain. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I drink all night and I work all day. Okay. It's going to be in all of our heads. Night. I'm not sure. Yeah, but. It's going to be in every listener's head for <laughs> the foreseeable future. I'm a huge Monty Python fan as I have bored Gina within the car for the last couple of hours. Oh, Mike, you know what? But. Don't take the yawning personally. It's just... Uh, <laughs> Uh, okay, <laughs> fine. Then you can. No, I like my th- Monty Python a lot too. I'm not a huge Python head, as many people are, but uh, I certainly appreciate them. Yeah, and I mean Michael Palin is obviously one of the the key members and a founder. But I mean, when you think of some of the great sketches, from the dead parrot sketch to the the fish slapping dance <laughs> to um, I mean, there was a the great sketch with the the mountain climbers in a, in an office, and uh, I mean he was joking oh, yeah. in our interview about playing biggest dickus. Yeah, <laughs> or, or playing the emperor, talking about biggest diggers, and um, it was great. In, he's been in some of the seminal like Monty Python sketches and the lumberjack song, which is why I have it in my head. Mike has this ability to turn off his fanboydom. So fanboy, fanboydom, <laughs> dumb, uh, whatever. I try, and, but you know what? It, it, you did it. So when yeah. you interviewed him, like you really became a professional uh, interviewer. He didn't even ask for an autograph, which I totally would have. I told you this is why I cannot meet my heroes, but Mike. <laughs> Surprisingly, like functions very well in front of his. Yeah, inside I was all, ee! but uh, outwardly I was totally f- cool. I think, but not a uh, skill I possess, Mike. <laughs> Good for you. But you know, the Monty Python actually segues into what we're we're there to talk to him about because he writes in his new book, uh, which is called Erebus, that he was on stage with the rest of the Python uh, minus Graham Chapman, of course, in 2014. And they'd done those giant shows in the O2 Arena in London. 200,000 people came and saw them. And he mentions in the intro to this book that he was, it left him almost in an anticlimactic state. He was longing for something more, for an adventure, for something different instead of just doing the parrot sketch again, the lumberjack song again. And that's how, uh, partly how, we ended up with this book called uh, Erebus, One Ship, Two Two Epic Voyages, and the Greatest Naval Mystery of All Time. And Uh, it's nonfiction. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. Right. Michael Michael Palin's had a whole second act uh, as a travel, as a as an explorer, as a travel journalist of, of sorts, making documentaries, traveling all over the world. We talked about this in the uh, interview that he did. He was worked more as a travel uh, documentary documentarian. Can't even talk today. A travel documentarian than he has as a member of Monty Python. Mm-hmm. Like his travel part of his career has been more than Monty Python. And uh, he loves it. He says it, it gives him uh, it gives him like new life. Exactly. Yeah. He's been doing it for 30 years. And, and I mean, 
Uh, for those who don't know about uh, the book, it's called, like I said, Erebus, and it's about the Erebus ship. And uh, it's a fascinating sort of 19th century tale of this ship that took a voyage down to uh, the Antarctic and was exploring the Antarctic. And then it was one of the ships on the Franklin Expedition, which is sort of the um, the, the, the heart of the story. The, the Franklin Expedition that was going up to try to find the Northwest Passage. And of course, uh, they didn't and they all died. And the ships were way off course that and it's uh, the, sh- the other ship that was with them, the Terror, which is... Uh, as a side note, do you want to be riding on it, like especially in like the 19th century with a scurvy? I wouldn't and even want to be traveling shipwrecks. with the terror. Yeah, you want to be on the terror. No. Yeah, exactly. The terror. Can you imagine Who named uh, this what's the name ship? of our ship? Oh, it's called the Terror. Yeah, don't worry, it'll be fine. Well, I mean, what were the choices back then? Right, this is the 1800s. Scurvy. Anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like anything other than terror. Like, I guess the other ship. The famine. Like, I mean, yeah, exactly. Ride the yeah, famine. I guess the horror was out of commission by then, so they took the Erebus. And anyway, uh, the Erebus. And the terror went off course and the Franklin expedition, they all died and they never actually sort of reached and, and found the, the Northwest Passage. And uh, in recent years, I forget, what, I think it was 2015, but I could be wrong. Uh, the, it, the, the ships were found in the Canadian Arctic mm-hmm. and uh, Stephen Harper, Prime Minister Stephen Harper at the time, he made the announcement. And that was one of the things that sort of caught Michael Palin's interest and caught his eye and, and made him want to learn more about this ship. And uh, and from there, he traveled the, the same routes up down to Antarctica, up through the Canadian Arctic to retrace the, uh, I don't know if you call it retracing steps when it's a ship, Re- retrace the waves. The waves, yeah. Retrace the waves of the Erebus and learn about this ship that we don't know a ton about uh, and learn about what happened to these men on this ship and and their fates and there's still so many mysteries we don't know about the Franklin expedition and how it failed and why it failed but uh, you know Michael Palin he he writes this book in incredible detail it's been getting rave reviews he's got little bits of humor in there as well you know uh, when you're reading it so it's really a fascinating that's probably why he chose it because there's some accounts such as uh, they built a pub on the ship no, they built it when they were stranded in the ice. They yeah. built a pub out of the ice for New Year's. <laughs> That's what we talk about in the interview where it's like only the essentials, right? They built a pub, yeah. not not lodgings, not not another ship or something to get out of there. <laughs> just, no, we'll just build a pub. So, uh, so yeah. So, I mean, we were That's there. To what t- gravitated him toward the topic. Right. So we were there to talk about the Erebus, but, of course, we talked a little bit about Monty Python as well. And um, he was every bit of the gentleman and, and the kind man that everybody says he was. And it was a thrill uh, to interview Michael Palin. Okay, well, before we get to Mike's interview, a uh, little housekeeping. Follow us on everythingzoomer.com where my, Mike's articles are there, my videos are there. This podcast resides there, Ages and Icons. Other people have articles and stuff there, too. Uh, yeah, do so they? Not, <laughs> I don't read it. Everythingmikeandgina.com. That's it, yeah. <laughs> also known as everythingzoomer.com. <laughs> And, um, of course, you can uh, follow and subscribe us and listen to us on um, iTunes. Let's see. We're on Stitcher. Oh, we are now on Spotify. Spotify, So look for us there. And uh, that's about it. Oh, yeah. Let's jump into the interview. That's why we're here. (laughs) So here's here's Mike's interview with Michael Palin. Okay, we're good. Yeah, we're all set. Okay, well, I—I I mean, I have so many questions, so I'll well, just jump right uh, in. Well, <laughs> far away. I will try and give you some answers. Yeah. 
the Erebus, uh, the book. Yeah. First of all, am I pronouncing that right? Erebus? Yeah, Erebus is right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had some debates with Erebus or Erebus. Yeah, so. I know. It's been a problem, actually. Uh, I've, I don't know how to address that. You yeah. Just uh, <laughs> I change it. E-R-R-Y-B-U-S. Yeah. But it's Erebus, yeah. Perfect. So, um, I mean, it's a fascinating story, mm. obviously, traveling to, mm. to the Antarctic and then traveling up with the Franklin expedition mm. to the, find the Northwest mm. Passage. But as the writer of the book who got to do that same sort of trip in mm. your research, what was that like to sort of retrace the steps? Um, it, was quite, it was quite oddly moving in parts because I'd read a lot about the people. and I, My book about the ship is, is also very much about the people on board the ship mm -hmm. and what sort of people they were and trying to glean any information from their diaries, their letters, what, might have, what it might have been like. So going to some of the places where they had, uh, important places where they spent time, there was definitely a kind of little, uh, little quickening of the, of, of the blood when I was there. And seeing the lighthouse <coughs> in, in Tasmania, there's a long estuary that leads up to Hobart, which was very, very important for their ships mm -hmm. when they went to the Antarctic. And they all mentioned this lighthouse called the Tin Pot Lighthouse. And the Tin Pot Lighthouse is still there. And it was just quite something to be in, down in Tasmania, looking out to sea. There's no land before you get to Antarctica, yeah. and there's the Tin Pot Lighthouse still winking away as it had for them. That was right. that was great. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned that uh, a lot of the book, of course, is about the people on the ship, and yes. that was one of the sort of fascinating things because there's so many mysteries associated with this story still, like yeah, well, yeah. what happened, what happened to Franklin yeah. and yeah. a lot of his men, how they died, yeah. how the ships ended up so off course, and mm. um, there was the the Pegler Papers, which you called yes. sort of an enigma. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Where if you read the book, you you understand like this could explain a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm just as so for yourself, I mean, obviously as the writer, there's some mysteries you just can't explain. If you could have one of those explained, which one would you love to just sort of know the answer to? Ah, well, I'd love to know what went on in the ship, the Erebus, after Franklin died. Because he kind of up to that point, everything, there's, a, there's a, the one record, the Victory Point note, has a little thing saying it's 1847, all well, uh, Sir John Franklin commanding, yeah. and it's underlined the all well. Within 11 months, everything had changed. That note had been rewritten around the outside. Franklin had died a week after the all was well. Um, nine men, uh, 15 men and nine officers had died in that time. What, had, what happened? Was there, was there an outbreak of scurvy on board the ship? Um, how were the decisions taken to eventually abandon the ship? Yeah. And, you know, what, I suppose also what was Franklin's position at that time? Was he in a strong enough position to tell them, look, if I get sick, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. So that, that little, what happened in that little period in the latter half of 1847, I'd love to have been a, a fly on the wall or a polar bear in the water yeah. or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> do you find uh, when you're writing a book like this, that humor helps to convey the story to the readers? Because I, I noticed that it's not, it's not a humorous book, per se. It's not a comedy book, but there is humor yeah. in it. And I don't know yeah. if that's just you, you, that's your personality or if it also helps convey the story. No, I, I, I always search out the humor in everything, really. Yeah. I mean, if I can't find humor somewhere, then I'm kind of not so interested. And 
And I think that's it's, it's something that's beginning to be people are becoming aware now. Like there's a lot of celebrations in Britain at the moment, celebrations, sorry, mem commemorations of what happened in the First World War. And you just know all these terrible pictures of people going out of the trenches and being shot and all that. And yet, it's, it's now known that there was a great, you know, in order to survive this, a great deal of humour, a great deal of comradeliness in the face of the awfulness of what they had to do. And the same on Erebus and Terror. I think there was a great comradeliness amongst the people there, you know, and, and it must have been, and we know that they, on, eight, on New Year's Day, 1842, they carved an eight-foot woman out of the ice in the Antarctic. And they built a pub, and they did. A, they made a dance floor, <laughs> the and they had a party. You know, <laughs> so this doesn't sound like people who were terrified of the ice and darkness. Maybe they were, but that was their way of of dealing with it. So, I mean, humour is also the way in which people relax. I think, and, and you can get an account with humour in it is always uh, is always worth twice as much as yeah. a, a formal account. I love that they built a pub. Like that's the thing that was the essential thing yeah, for them yeah. there. It's like a pub, yeah, not a house know, or a lodging. I know, <laughs> I know, not a laboratory. <laughs> no, no it was, I love that. I love that. It's, um, yeah, and they had ice creams on the, down the, they, you know, the further south than anyone would ever been, and they hand out ice creams. Yeah. Just <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> now, I, it's really interesting to me that you sort of started this second career uh, traveling and, and writing and doing television shows about travel. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that in an interview I read that you really first traveled the world when you were 45. Um, yeah. Which is interesting because yeah. our Zoomer magazine, uh, where we're from, is it is for the 45 and up demographic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we, we mm. talk about second acts a lot. And this was really a second act for you yeah. in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And, mm. and I mean, you've almost been correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been like sort of doing travel work longer than you did Monty Python. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah which yeah. you were originally yeah, sort of known for. No, no, exactly. Yeah, much, yeah. much longer. Yeah. So, I mean, how, what has that meant <coughs> for you to be able to spend the last 30 years traveling the world and, and exploring these mysteries and telling these stories? It's, it has been terrific. I mean, it's re really, I wouldn't say it's given me a new lease of life because I always had a lease of life. I always had an appetite for doing things. But, um, you know, making, t doing television, making movies, appears very glamorous, but actually at studios, it's, you know, being picked up at five in the morning to go and spend a day doing nothing and then taken back and all that. So suddenly being able to travel um, and the way I did and have to report back, um, suddenly opened, it, um, yeah, oh, cliche, but opened the horizons. It suddenly made me feel, hey, physically and, and you know, intellectually a bit more stimulated at a time when some people were saying, oh, well, it's the second half of your life, you know, midlife crisis and all that. And for me, no, it was the start of something new, which has really invigorated me since. And uh, I mean, you can tell the way I talk about the books and their travels. I'm still enormously um, interested in, in the rest of the world and what it's like. And I'm, I'm just a restless soul. And I think a lot of people are. Some aren't. Some are quite happy. My wife, for instance, is, is happy to stay at home. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a restless soul, which is probably why we've been married for 52 years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and would you equate um, the ability to travel and just sort of get out and see the world? Is there an equation between that and just sort of aging in a healthy, active way? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it depends how you travel. I mean, the many, many ways to travel. I think you can either travel comfortably, um, but you don't experience the sort of the, the actual sensations, the, the, the noise and the smell and the feel of places. 
Um, and that's okay, you would get around, you see the world. To me, you've got to actually, there's got to be a sort of interaction between you and the places you go to. You've got to, it is a bit of a risk. And, and, and when I first traveled, you know, around the world in 80 days, I said, well, I don't speak any of these languages. What am I going to do? It's going to be embarrassing. And actually, it wasn't too bad, because in the end, everybody will talk to you in some way or another. You can make, you can make some contact, but you have to make the effort yourself. Yeah. <clears throat> and what you get back from making that effort is something really rewarding. It's not someone telling you in a book, if you look at that building, it's built in the 16th century, take a picture and go on. It's saying, you know, you've discovered in that market somebody who, you know, his child is about the same age as your child and, uh, you know, you're going to sort of write them a letter or something like that in years to come. Those, those are important things. And there's a, an, uh, I guess, a phenomenon, you might call it, I'm sure you've heard, they call it the Palin effect. Where places you visit and, yeah, then, and then yeah. spikes tourism. Well, yeah, the places <laughs> like the middle of the Sahara. Yeah. I don't think, you know, a spike would be two people instead of one going right. the year before. <laughs> <coughs> but yeah, no, the, the, the certain, and I'm, it's one of the, the best things about traveling is that I do occasionally get compliments from people who say, you know, because of, because of you and watching your program, we went there, you know, yeah. and uh, went somewhere quite difficult and we got a lot out of it. <laughs> I remember well, it doesn't always work. We were once bouncing in a bus across northern Sudan, and it was a terribly sort of, it was just, just a metal bus, and every time it bumped you, your head went forward, your knees hit some bar and all that, and people were getting battered. Oh. And suddenly the two people in front turned around and said, we're here because of you. <laughs> so I felt I apologized to them for the rest of the journey. Sometimes it's a good effect, sometimes it's a yeah, yeah, painful yeah. effect. But I don't think they were utterly complaining. <laughs> now, where does Michael Palin still long to travel to and visit and see? Well, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind going to back to some of the places I've already visited. I mean, I've been to some extraordinary places uh, and odd places like the Kamchatkan Peninsula, which is in very eastern Russia and north of Vladivostok. Absolutely beautiful, unspoiled world. 25 um, active volcanoes in this, this world, you know, rivers full of salmon and all that. Wow, I'd love to go back there again and say, did I really see that? Um, then, you know, new places, I'm, I'm, you know, Central Asia, I don't know anything about those. Um, the big uh, the stands, as they call them, yeah. uh, Kyrgyzstan, all that, because I think they're interesting. Because you know, a lot of our history is is a invasions from Central Asia. You know, whether it's Tamerlane going to India or sort of um, Kublai Khan going to China, and um, uh, the people who sort of sacked Rome, the Visigoths, it all came yeah. out of Central Asia. So I'm quite interested to know what that's like now. Why they all wanted to leave, and why there was such ferocious ferocious and very successful empire builders. And do you have any uh, particularly fond memories of traveling throughout Canada? Yes, I have some very happy memories of traveling throughout Canada um, and, and some less happy. But no, no. <laughs> we, we, um, my, we did a Monty Python tour of Canada very early on when Python wasn't well known, but the Canadians have been big fans of Python, which we appreciated greatly. But our, our, our Manager obviously had no sense of geography and thought that Canada was about the size of the Isle of Wight, you know, and you could just go to places in about a few hours and didn't realize that going, doing a one night stand in Toronto and then going on to Calgary was, was a bit of a long haul. <laughs> so we, we did that. We were, we were, I mean, nobody knew us terribly well. Saskatoon actually cancelled 
uh, our, our visit for lack of interest. Yeah. Lack oh my God. Yeah. Um, but um, I, you know, I can I can remember other times I've I've been through the Rockies. Um, we travelled on when I did uh, full circle right up from Vancouver right up to the to north right. to the to Alaska. Um, and of course, my journey last year to the Northwest Passage was right, absolutely course, fascinating. Yeah. It really opened up Canada for me. Yeah. Flying, you know, you fly up and gradually the the, the land beneath gets less and less sort of green and then the trees disappear altogether and then there's just water and stone and gravel and then God, ice. It's fun, you know, realize how big a country it is. What wow. A, a big country. And you actually, you celebrated your 75th anniver anniversary, 75th birthday yes. in North Korea. I did. Right? I did. That, that's that is something, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, is something. That is quite something. <laughs> I celebrated my 75th birthday in North Korea on a collective farm. What? Uh, <laughs> so what's a, what's a North Korean birthday party like? Well, there, there wasn't really a party. I was working hard. And, and um, you, you know, we, when we were, we were doing a sequence of me with this lady farmer, Nice lady, but uh, I was helping hoe the. They didn't have they only had manual tools there, so we just hoe, helping prepare the furrows for the planting that was to come. And I was doing this and going on, and eventually I, I just said, "How am I doing?" And there's a bit of tossing. She said, "You're completely useless." <laughs> so she was completely honest about it. But the, in the evening, in a little town called Wonsan on the far eastern um, shores of. North Korea, they uh, they made me a birthday cake, a North Korean birthday cake. Wow! Yeah, and they put candles on it, and we had a few drinks, and it was all very, very as happy as it would be anywhere else in the world. It was lovely. Wow, that's so sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned Monty Python earlier, and I know um, next year is the 50th anniversary, which a lot of people are asking what's going on, and and from what I've un Eric Idle has said that there isn't really anything planned. Do you mm. would you well, it's difficult. We've had many anniversaries, and yeah. I think we've done just about as many documentaries as we can possibly do. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure there's another documentary in us. Um, the, the the last great thing we did, which was terrifically successful, was the um, the concerts in London, the ten yeah. concerts. And they, that was great, and I don't think you'd ever we could ever produce anything as good as that. And you know, it's sad because Terry Terry Jones got has dementia, and would not I don't think be able to to take part. Uh, Graham's dead, so there's it, four of us, you know, and, and we'll, I, I don't know whether we'll, we'll, we will do something, I'm sure. We'll probably be rude about each other on yeah. public television. <laughs> <laughs> what, what does it mean to you that people still care? Because, I mean, it's on Netflix. Uh, there's a whole new generation yeah. discovering Monty yeah. Python, so that they even care that it is the 50th anniversary. Mm. How does that feel for you? Well, you, you should ask my accountant. <laughs> He'd say, oh, this feels pretty good. Now, I, I, we don't make a lot from it, but it's, it, it is terrific that, that there's a generation now, uh, and lots of people tell me, you know, a number of people said, I've got a nine-year-old son. I just showed him Monty Python, uh, The Life of Brian. I said, you did what? Oh, and he thinks Biggest Dickus is the funniest thing he's ever heard. And I think, wow, <laughs> you know, Biggest Dickus has survived three generations. And there are still people who laugh at it. That, that's, yeah. that's good, you know. Yeah. I mean, what can you say? We're not forcing them to laugh. Um, it's just out there, and if people respond to it like that, then I'm I'm, I'm delighted in a way. It's a I, I don't, you know, I I don't feel that 
my sense of humor has changed in any way or dated. The things I would laugh at now are probably the things I laughed at when I was in my 20s and writing Monty Python. And it's nice to be, um, to have that confirmed that there are people now who will laugh at something that I did when I was uh, 50 years ago, you know. Yeah. It, it's quite a legacy and quite a gift to be able to give generations laughter. Yeah, yeah, well, th that is really, yeah, yeah. Um, before we go, um, yeah. I wanted to ask you for maybe a, a bit of advice or two for any of our listeners or viewers mm. or readers who are going to be traveling. Uh, yeah. Anything that maybe you've sort of learned over the years or little tips or, or tidbits that you can advise? Well, you know, never be afraid. I think there's a lot of fear of travel and going to places. And actually, I, every risk I've ever taken so far, I'm not <laughs> don't, don't quote me on this, I don't want any lawyers after me, but it's, just, it, you know, it's worth trying to, to go for somewhere which is slightly difficult. Never ever take anyone else's word for a place. You've got to experience it yourself. You know, people say, don't go there, or you've got to go there. It's got to be something that you're interested in. So I, I mean, I'm just, I would imagine that probably the people who are interested in travel, who, who you know, you, you talk to, are people who know a bit about the world, who read a bit about it, look at, um, you know, maps, plan trips. Um, that's a good thing. Just do it for yourself and make sure it's your own personal thing. And if you have a dream, then, then you know, go, go for it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mr. Palin. And, okay. and congratulations on the book again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good interview, Mike. Thanks. Yeah, that was uh, a huge thrill, a personal thrill of mine. Every once in a while in this job, you get to meet people who are actually sort of heroes to you in real life, and he is one of them. Did he disappoint, Mike? No, he did not. He was wonderful. And, and after we went off uh, the air, off the air, after we, we finished recording, mm -hmm. we were talking for a little bit. And, you know, it, earlier on in my career here at Zoomer, I interviewed Terry Jones, another member of Monty Python, and he's now... Uh, suffering from a form of dementia and uh, Michael Palin and he are, are sort of best friends so we were talking about that but Terry Jones was another example of somebody I met where just you know check that off the bucket list a, a hero who yeah. did not disappoint such a, uh, a wonderful bright funny uh, kind soul and uh, so Michael Palin gave us a bit of an update he, you know he said Terry's he's struggling it's you know it's a difficult thing to deal with. Yeah, that sucks. But, uh, but Michael Palin still goes and visits him, and they, their bond is as strong as ever. And, uh, yeah, Michael Palin was wonderful. Did uh, Michael Palin tell you where his love of travel came from? Well, he he actually, it's funny, he would he recounted... Because um, I always wonder that, because, like, I'm a kind of a homebody. Only when I'm out and about, you have to really drag me to go on the trips, and like, big trips. But when I'm out and about, I love, like, I'll stay out there. Mm -hmm. I'll even extend trips. But, uh, like, what drives, like, was he talking about what drives him to... Well, he, he's Even written, though I was there, I didn't quite... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I missed some of some stuff. He and I there. didn't talk about it, but he's written about it, how he would be in, uh, you know, grade school, basically. And, and, you know, you'd learn, you'd look at maps and atlases and such and learn geography. But it was really when he would go out on field trips mm. with his class, whether be it on a, a long-distance trip or even just somewhere in and around where he lived, but just the idea of getting out and visiting the places instead of just reading about them in books was what sparked his lifelong love of travel, which um, he also said in an interview, he said, you know, he was 45 before he finally traveled the world. Wow. And not that, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't want to trade his Monty Python years to travel more, but I mean, he has really made the most of it in the last 30 years because he just turned 75 this year. Yeah, 
And he looks amazing. Oh, my God, yeah. And the fact that he still has the energy to do all this traveling. It's great. Yeah, and he's actually traveling. It brings you energy, really. It's new experiences in traveling the world, I would imagine. Oh, oh, my God. Your horizons are so broadened. And he was <laughs> telling us how many uh, different cities and, and countries he has to travel to for the book tour. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. He almost he's doing more travel for the book tour than he did for the book. Mm. But, I mean, it's nice to be in demand, right? It, after 30 years of doing something, people still want to to see you. Well, Mike, that was a great interview as always. Yeah, I, I uh, thank you, Gina. And I highly recommend uh, checking out again. The name of the book is Erebus, One Ship, Two Epic Voyages, and the Greatest Naval Mystery of All Time. It's by Michael Palin. It's a fabulous uh, read. Anybody I know who's read it uh, could not put it down. I can't and, wait to read it. And Yeah, and I can attest to that. It. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful, fun, uh, enlightening read. It's available now. So anywhere you get books, you can uh, find Erebus. Okay, and uh, again, follow us on uh, everythingzoomer.com. The Ages and Icons podcast is there. Uh, uh, what else? iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now Spotify. Spotify yeah. So thanks a bunch, everybody. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, and thank you, of course, to Michael Palin for his time today. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you to Gina, as always, and to everyone listening. And we'll see you next time on Ages and Icons. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.